Welcome to the Profitable Python with your host, Ben McNeil. On this episode, you will meet Vladimir Bach. Vladimir is a senior product manager overseeing machine learning infrastructure and research teams at a New York-based startup. He co-authored a book about generative adversarial networks. Vladimir, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. This is going to be a lot of fun. So before we go anywhere, I need you to help me, under, or help me explain to my 90-year-old grandmother what in the heck is a GAN. So um, I like to start with just explaining the use case. So GAN um, is a machine learning technique that allows computers to generate photorealistic data that is synthetic. So it's, it's a way to generate images that are not of um, uh, real, they are not a real photography, but do, but do look just like a, a real photograph would. Um, so that's, and then, and, and they do, and as the name may suggest, uh, they learn through a ver adversarial framework where it's, where there are two neural networks effectively locked in a cat and mouse game. And as one gets better, the second gets better as well. And that allows uh, one of the networks to, to, to generate the photorealistic imagery, while the other one is learning to distinguish the photorealistic imagery uh, that was generated from the first network or, uh, and identify it as fake as opposed to the real images that are in the training data set. Uh, I believe that was slightly convoluted. I may get another uh, another shot on it, but um, broadly speaking, and it's, it's a way to generate photorealistic imagery through a competitive dynamic between two neural networks. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely so. You would consider this an advancement in the technology because up to this point, it was it was only one side of that coin. Is that kind of Yes, definitely. It's, it's, it's paradigm shifting. So historically, when we look at machine learning and deep learning, then it was always about uh, a subclass of it called supervised learning, where there is a data set where you know the answer. And then you have tens of thousands of examples, each with a label, such as a set of images, and there is a dog on the image, or there isn't a dog. And you feed these into a machine learning algorithm, and the algorithm learns to identify the patterns in this data and to, uh, to be able to associate a previously unseen image to the correct label, as in, does it have a dog or it doesn't. So computers have been able to learn extremely complex functions between input data and the correct output label. Other places where computers have shined are game playing. So, for instance, you know, in the late 90s, uh, DeepMind uh, defeated uh, uh, World Chess, um, Chess Master Gary Kasparov in a, in, a, in, a, in a match. Recently, um, the game of Go was conquered by machines. So, and that's um, another area where they shine because it's a fairly well-defined problem space with a, re with a clear objective. And computers can learn through countless simulations where they can determine the correct path. However, when it came to generating, so to summarize, computers have been tremendously good at identifying patterns in existing data 
and leveraging this insight into tasks like classification, which is determining the correct label for an image or 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 or, or soundtrack or, or something like that, or regression, which is predicting like a time series number and things like that. But historically, computers have been fairly poor at generating new data. So essentially, you can think of it as doing the process in reverse, taking a label like a dog and then generating an image of a dog without like essentially, again, like it's, a, it's like a classification in reverse. And there is multiple technical uh, reasons why this is, this is a very complex task. And it truly wasn't um, achieved until 2014 when Ian Goodfellow, who was at the time a um, PhD student at the University of Montreal and his colleagues have invented generative adversarial networks, which is a completely uh, novel learning paradigm which, which pits two neural networks against, against each other. And that really allowed um, machines and artificial systems to do the process in reverse and generate from what ends up what is often no more than a random noise or some input label and generate a photorealistic um, image or even even a video yeah my, my my experience with these it's been a they're super hard to train and then the little data set that i was working on was with fashion designs mm -hmm. and uh some other people that i was working with this on they would get like shirt, like when they were training with shirts and pants and shoes, they would get like shirt shoes and stuff. <laughs> so yeah, is exactly. there like, how does, how does that kind of play into the mix? Cause maybe it didn't have enough time to learn like, Oh, a shirt shoe is not a real thing. Or is there another type of learning that it would need to integrate to say like, you know, we have shirts and we have shoes, but shirt shoes are not a thing. Yeah. So there is uh yeah, there is a range of challenges of, uh, due to the complexity of this learning technique. And the GANs are notoriously tricky to, uh, to train um, effectively mm -hmm. because the underlying algorithm is, and the optimization process through which it goes or the learning process through which it goes is uh, not guaranteed to converge because those are extremely complex spaces which have often millions of dimensions, and we can, as humans, we can visualize only three, uh, that have to be uh, optimized to, um, to against uh, some, some objective. And now if you have two of these, and this would be just with a single neural network. Now we have two of these competing against each other and learning from each other's mistake. So it's it takes, it's, it's part, much like, all of deep learning, it's part um, art, part science, where most results don't have mathematical, much like, unlike in classical machine learning, there are no true mathematical guarantees that a certain model will converge or what needs to be done for it to, to, to achieve its objective. It's all, all the um, like mind-bending uh, findings in deep learning have been determined empirically where uh, researchers just try something based on intuition and then see if it if it actually yielded reliably the, the result and then it also uh, leads to like very interesting research areas where um, people make assumption about how a particular model works or what type of internal representations in develop it develops and then 
uh, run a uh, test with a trained neural network to see whether it actually is consistent with the hypothesis they had. And that's and a lot of these are about the different semantic representations that these models learn. And there are some fascinating um, findings, both in natural language processing as well as in with images and, and GANs in particular, where uh, in a, what ends up being completely unsupervised fashion, uh, the neural network is able to learn different concepts that constitute an image. Meaning if you feed it a data set of human faces, it is able to develop an internal representation for what glasses are, or for what facial hair is, uh, or different hairstyle and things like that. And then there are uh, really interesting manipulations that can be done to, to generate or, or compose an image that, um, that the researchers would, would like to be produced. And you may have seen actually in, in the news recently uh, the different applications that make uh, people look older. So you take a, take a selfie and then the algorithm immediately turns you into an older or younger version of you. Mm -hmm. And those, tend, those are almost exclusively based on, on generative learning where right, like the, the algorithm is unable to see you older or younger. There is no data set to train on. But by learning about, um, but by being fed a data set of what ends up being tens of thousands of images of human faces uh, at various age stages, it's able to um, determine uh, the, the concepts of what constitutes uh, an aging in the context of human faces, enough to actually generate a very convincing uh, results to, to capture the imagination of of, of broad media and um, you know, the app users. There's like three things that are just exploding in my brain right now. I got to ask one, mm -hmm. there's, there's something going on with maybe the, like the implications of where ethics has gone since GANs have come on the scene. I'm, I'm curious how you kind of see that changing. And then also I've noticed that computing power is like my computer was good for like some of these other things. But mm -hmm. when I threw GANs into the mix, it was just like my, my computer couldn't really handle it. So there's implications for the infrastructure with these as well. And then the other thing that just kind of triggered in my brain what you were talking about here is there's an art and a science to these. And mm -hmm. I know that you've written a uh, paper on Medium about kind of like the, the art of um, like, like how, how generative uh, networks are working with art or like the implications of human creativity. So do you think AI could actually make better AI or is that already, I don't, I don't mean to bombard you. I just, that was just like all these things. I was like, yeah. I gotta ask this stuff. I think your question started with like, there are three things to touch on and I can already see like a dozen others that okay. are in your, that are to be unpacked in your answer. So yeah. first one, I will start with the, the latest, the, the thing that you mentioned at the very end, which is AI creating other AI. That if you look historically at technology, that has always been the part of the debate when first machinery has been introduced in factories, and this is you know, hundreds of years ago, the question was like, what if there are machines created other machines? And that was a really scary thought to humans because it used to be that humans created the machines and put them in the factory and that created um, whatever the, those machines were meant to do. But now we live in a world where that's common sense, right? We have 
uh, factories creating that have no other purpose than to create other machines for other factories. And now we are getting to a similar stage with um, artificial intelligence, where you know GANs can be seen as the first step towards it, where we have machines training other machines. That has always technically had been the case in game playing, where you can have just two game playing, like just playing bots, and they can just play against one another. So there always there seems to be a component of um, AI helping to train other AI. And I believe we will see, see more of that, especially with, you know, we already see applications of it with self-driving uh, cars and that are trained in simulated environments and, and other use cases. So that's the, um, that's the last that's the last part of the question. Uh, to, to continue on, um, artificial creativity, you know, you noted that, that I've written about it myself. I think it's an, um, it's a really interesting area, both uh, practically and philosophically, um, because when we look at the, and this is something that I was, you know, it's been uh, um, keeping me late, uh, up late at night, is that um, historically humans have always sought to distinguish ourselves as unique or superior to the rest of the living forms. Uh, and this goes all the way back to you know, millennia ago where religions have started. And um, no matter at which level we look, it's humans have always been seen as superior to other species. So in Bible, we are that divinely, divinely ordained to have dominion over our species. Even in Buddhism, it is um, no other life form can attain enlightenment than, than a human. So there is an always a sense of superiority of, of, of us as species. And then that notion uh, began to crumble with uh, science and uh, discovery of the genome and um, other um, and um, like evolution or genome species and all, and all that, that effectively put humans on the same evolutionary tree. But then science helped us also to, to define ourselves as distinct, like we have opposable thumb, we are able to use tools, we are able to communicate with each other and organize in ways that other species just cannot match. And if you look around ourselves and civilization and all that humans have been able to accomplish, even the fact that we can you know, have this conversation digital and record this podcast, it's you know, something that um, is, is magic-like. And again, no other species come even close. But now with the but it was always, to an extent, our intelligence that distinguished us, right? We are not stronger than others, other species. In, a, in any battle, we are essentially hopeless. But we have been always able to unsmart them, and now we are effectively, thanks to our tools and our ability to organize and, and think intelligently, we are on top of the food chain um, in almost any, any habitat. But with the advent of artificial systems that are capable of emulating our intelligence, that notion that our in, that, it, that intelligence is what distinguishes us from other forms of life, even digital ones, uh, has begun to crumble in that sense that it doesn't seem to be um, something that we can continuously rely on. Right? We humans have been beaten in now any game ranging from chess to Jeopardy, and although all AI systems, even the most advanced ones, are effectively single trick ponies, right? Like the, um, 
AlphaGo that beat the best Go player it can only play Go. You can't have a conversation uh, with it, like you can have a bit of fellow human and things like that. But it seems almost um, inevitable. And again, this is only speculation because there is a wide debate about whether general AI will be, will be achieved. But it seems that the technology is moving in the direction where it's conceivable that there's going to be an artificial system capable of emulating what we would see as true human general intelligence or even consciousness and rationality. And then the question becomes, is art going to be what will be our distinguishing feature? Because art is something that is hard to imagine uh, a being other than human, even if it's an intelligent one, to be able to engage in or want to engage in. And my point um, that, or my viewpoint on this is that if we allow ourselves to believe that artificial general intelligence, meaning independent artificial intelligence agents that are indistinguishable from humans in, in our thought processes, would be able to match our us on all cognitive tasks, then it's seems naive to believe that uh, creativity and artistic expression would be somehow magically out of the domain of these extremely complex systems because, um, and that's, that's a broad point. And I end on that. Uh, and then it's interesting to think about because then we can loop it all the way back and look at creation, which is, which would be, you know, if, if the, dystopian um, scenarios prove, prove correct and AI uh, agents not only match our intelligence but also choose to uh, replace us or, or decide that you know humans or biological forms have been superseded and, and you know we, we as species end up being exterminated by, by our creation then it would be really ironical because all these AI agents wouldn't be suffering from the type of existential soul searching that plagued us humans for millennia because there would be no question about what makes them distinct because they have been created. So in the end, we may, as humans, we may not be um, divine in our origin, but we might be divine in our undoing. <laughs> it's, it's really just a, a, me, like a mental explosion. I, like we could just end the podcast right there and you could chew on that for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's something that's been on my mind for a long time. Actually, that's how I, the way that I actually got to GANS was through a creative application. So you may have seen, um, uh, because in, even on your, on your cell phone, the different apps that allow you to put a filter on a photograph mm -hmm. that turns the photograph to look as a Van Gogh painting or a painting from your um, uh, artist of choice. It essentially renders it in a very believable way to be to look in a, in a, in a specific stylistic treatment. So again, like Bungo painting, Starry Night was a, uh, was a uh, very, very uh, popular one, a fil popular filter to use. And uh, me, and, and this was back when I was working at Microsoft, uh, my colleagues and I, uh, uh, the project uh, where we try to do a similar artistic style transfer in music. So you can imagine taking a track from Justin Bieber and applying the style of Beatles to it uh, or, or an ar other arbitrary set of uh, 
musicians mm-hmm. and see whether you can apply one track in, uh, in the style of another. And we know that it is possible because much like in art, you can imagine a human artist rendering any photograph in a style of a given painter. You, we know in music, you know, there are pop, pop music tracks that are played by an orchestra. And it's clearly identifiable, although it's a completely different set of intro, instruments and completely different rendering, we can still identify it as the same melody easily and, and be able to, to identify what, what pop music track is being played, although it's not played with you know, electronic instruments, it's played with um, um, you know, violins, um, trumpets and drums and, and other things. Uh, did that project, did you guys uh, go full circle with that project or was it uh, just kind uh, of like an idea? Yeah, so we had some, so it was a, um, uh, it was like we had limited success uh, enough actually, you know, to, 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 to pique my interest and continue, continue working with cats for, you know, for, for, you know, years to come actually, effectively. And that um, is one of the, the key influences actually behind uh, the opportunity to write a book um, about GANs uh, with my co-author, Jacob. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I just kind of went off there. I had like a line of questioning and I just got curious oh. and went off. So <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a topic that lends itself well to tangents. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, so I'm just looking through here. Uh, what what applications do you see semi-supervised learning having the largest impact going forward? Sounds great. So let's first define semi-supervised learning. Okay. So we have two. So there are two main classes or three main classes um, that we can look that we can classify um, machine learning and deep learning approaches into. First one is supervised learning, which we covered at the beginning. Uh, of our uh, conversation mm-hmm. where you have a large data set and each example has a label. So all the algorithm needs to do is to learn a mapping from the input data into the correct label um, and do it so in a way that generalizes well to unseen examples, meaning if you provided an image or image or a, or a data point that wasn't seen in the training data, it's still going to be able to assign uh, the correct label or, or predict the correct uh, numeric value or, or what have you. In the other of the extreme is unsupervised learning, which is there are no labels. You have a large, but you have a large data set. So you help machines to learn on them by themselves the uh, useful patterns in the data, which then can be leveraged for uh, a range of purposes. Good example there would be clustering. You may not know if there are any commonalities within your data, but you can run a clustering algorithm and the computer will tell you about like the different clusters that are uh, represented in, in what may be extremely complex data sets. Uh, you may, a um, lot of, the vast majority of applications in industry are in the area of supervised learning. Um, it's, you know, any object recognition, um, image recognition, um, even text to speech and things like that, those tend to be um, largely uh, supervised learning uh, algorithms. But vast majority of data sets are unlabeled, which has really been limiting the usefulness of, um, of the applications which, which, can be, uh, which can be used and derived. 
So semi-supervised learning comes in a bit to the rescue where it's a combination of the two. You have a data set, which is all of the same nature, meaning it can be all images of animals, for instance. And then you have only a small subset of the data set where labels are provided or available. And then you learn and then you then train a semi-supervised uh, learning algorithm, which has some trick one of, that, you know, that uses um, the entire data set to learn useful patterns and then the subset with labels to then apply those um, learned representations into the correct labels. And what ends up happening is that you can achieve uh, similar levels of predictive performance or, or accuracy or, or other metric that you care about with semi-supervised learning with only a small subset of examples that you would be able to achieve with a fully separate supervised approach. But uh, what we are talking here is let's say only 1% of what you would of labeled examples compared to what you would need with a traditional supervised learning approach. So it's effectively a way to help machines to generalize extremely well from very limited data sets. And what's interesting about semi-supervised learning and why um, it's um, has been very fascinating to me is that it seems to be in machine learning the closest analog to how humans learn. Because when you look at school children, there is one textbook with letters and numerals. And then ch children, once they learn these symbols and read these symbols and what they mean, they can then read those letters in all kinds of different fonts, lighting conditions, angles, and um, situations which super, traditional supervised learning approaches wouldn't be able to. Traditional supervised learning approach, you teach it a set of handwritten numerals or like numerals, and it needs to be provided examples that are very similar uh, to, or similar, like in the same sort of domain that, that, that they have been used to or seen in training data. For humans, that's not a problem because um, children are able to read from one textbook and then read any, any font uh, or, again, um, any, an angle, any lighting conditions, things that normally would trip a, a machine learning algorithm. And supervised learning approaches are helping to um, for machines to generalize from a similarly small data sets into all different type, types of contexts. How, so how is that... Um, to just my intuition tells me like that can be kind of dangerous to extrapolate something from like a small set of data. But then what you're talking about with like a child learns from like these basic materials and they can create everything and beyond. So is it just, does it boil down to like computing power or special types of algorithms or what is it going to take to make it um, work? I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, um, what you touched on is has been the bane of machine learning since inception, <laughs> which is overfitting, yeah. which is effectively training an algorithm, and you see amazing performance on the training data, but what actually ends up, end up happening is that the algorithm memorized the training data set. And the moment you show it an example that wasn't represented in the training data, it completely flops. It just gives you a useless prediction. And there are some really hilarious use um, real-world um, stories where you know, that 
people fell um, um, prey to this um, to, um, um, to this issue. So with uh, supervised machine learning or semi-supervised machine learning, it's it's largely been a way to uh, marry the training uh, like semi unsupervised learning approaches with supervised, so that machines can actually genera generalize uh, from the small subset of data. And the way that this is done, it's not that you are training on a small, just on the small subset of the labeled examples. You also have a huge multitude of examples of the same nature. So it's again, like images of animals, uh, an example that we use that are unlabeled, but are still something, but, are, but still do contain a lot of extremely useful information. And GANs in particular have been uh, very effective as a way to help um, enhance the semi-supervised learning performance. And we can, um, and if you want, we can actually walk through the, the details of how that would be uh, would be set up and how GANs and generative learning is actually extremely useful when it comes to semi-supervised learning. Sure. Yeah, so let's you know let me backtrack to the to the beginning where I botched the explanation of GANs, and let's start from the get go. So GANs are composed of two uh, neural networks. One's called the generator, and the second one is called the discriminator. And the GAN setup also includes a training data set. Uh, the training data set is the type of images you want to emulate. So, for instance, if you want the GAN to start uh, generating photorealistic synthetic images of human faces, then you need a data set of, of human faces and large ones. Um, the generator's goal is to turn what is often no more than just random noise into realistic examples that are indistinguishable from the members of the training data. The discriminator wants to learn the difference between real examples and fake examples. To do that, the discriminator is given either an example coming from the training data for which it learns to assign the label true, or this is a real example, or the probability rather that this is likely to be true. And for the examples coming from the generator, the discriminator learns to assign the label false, as in, or um, or low probability that this is a real example. The generator's goal is to therefore fool the discriminator into believing that the fake examples it produces are real, are actually coming from the, from the real examples in the training data set. So you can see that there is a tension between the networks where the goal of the discriminator is for the fake examples to have low, low, low probability of being real while the generator wants the discriminator to assign high probability of being real to the fake examples it produces. And, you, and there is a ton of real-world analogies that actually makes this uh, concept more relatable, such as the one that is commonly used, including um, by the inventor of the technique Ian Goodfellow, is forging money, where you have some uh, criminal who is trying to forge bills that look indistinguishable from real ones, but then you have also police or detectives who are seeking to distinguish, um, um, 
tell apart what the, what are counterfeit um, currency from from the real thing. And then, as one gets better, the second one needs to get better as well. So the better the fake bills get, the better technology the detective will need to to be able to detect them. And then it's a continuous cat and mouse game, uh, where uh, both players that are locked in this adversarial dynamic uh, get better. And that actually. Um, is encode, uh, uh, it's very much like encompassed in the, in the term that we use, the generative adversarial network. So adversarial networks we just covered is effectively describing the dynamic and generative is just the purpose of the network, which is to learn to generate realistic data. So to apply this, and in order for the generator to learn to turn what is rent effectively just a vector of random numbers into photorealistic images, it needs to learn a very complex understanding of um, what the um, training data set looks like and be able to map random noise into a photorealistic image through its internal layers and internal representations. And the, the discriminator needs to develop a very complex understanding of what constitutes those images so that it's able to effectively tell between real and fake. And to apply this in a semi-supervised um, um, setting, we extend this GAN paradigm a little bit by adding labels. So we have a small subset in the training data of examples with labels. And each time the discriminator gets one of those labeled examples, it needs to not only correctly identify it's real, but also assign the correct label. So if it's a, so if, so we have three different cases. First case is that the generate, the discriminator gets a fake image. For this fake image, the discriminator wants to tell it's fake. The generator wants the discriminator to tell it's real. So the fake images can get better. But from the discriminator standpoint, it wants to classify fake as fake. For the real images without labels, it, all it can do is to just tell it's real. And it's optimized to tell the real uh, examples apart from the fake ones. Then there is the third case that we discuss, which is the real examples with labels, where the um, discriminator not only wants to correctly identify this as a real example, but also assign or classify it into the correct label. So if we had like in the simple example of handwritten numerals, it would need to be able to tell, is it the number nine or the number eight? In, in addition to being able to correctly identify that this is uh, a real human uh, handwritten numeral. And what's fascinating is that in order to be able to learn the real from fake, even without any labels involved, the discriminator learns very um, useful internal representations of the complex space that constitutes the real images, which um, intuitively gives it superpowers when it comes to assigning the labels because it already has an internalized structure of what constitutes the training data. So when an example comes in with a label, 
it's not really overfitting because it is, it's fairly, um, it's, it's able to see what that label means within that complex internal representation. It was able to learn in this effectively unsupervised or self-supervised way. And this is where and this, I think is a, it's a really um, great application of GANs, like a very practical uh, area where we can clearly see that you can have a large data set with only a small subset of examples with labels and then be able to turn the discriminator into not only an effective system telling what's real and fake or what's coming from the, disc from the generator and what's coming from training data, but also leverage those complex internal understandings of the training data into being able to um, uh, assign the correct label. And uh, in, in academia, people have been able to, um, on benchmark data sets, use this, uh, this technique to achieve um, similar accuracy with this approach to, to fully supervised approaches with only 1% of the, of the labeled examples, hmm. which is, and what we're talking about, yeah, so instead of, let's say, you know, ten of thousands of examples, you would need only 1,000, uh, you would need only, uh, only 100, which is, which is. It's amazing. It, it opens exactly. up like a whole, like so, so much, so many places where maybe you couldn't have done supervised learning it, it's no, nothing's off the table now is that kind of what i'm hearing uh yeah I'm, there is still room for these uh approaches to, to continue to improve but effectively uh it's it, that would be the case the trick here is that the other examples that are in the in the training data they still need to be coming from what um researchers would say is the same domain but um, intuitively, that just means it's the same set of examples. Mm -hmm. So it will be able to learn effectively. It was just like a set of random images. It still needs to be images that you eventually want the, 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 the algorithm to learn to identify properly. So, if it's, so, hand, so it's, it's images of handwritten digits, which is a, a simple example to use for illustration. Mm -hmm. All of the examples in the training data sets, labeled or unlabeled, would need to be of, of um, handwritten numerals. If there was an image that isn't part of the domain, such as an image of a human face or an image of an animal, then that wouldn't be providing any useful representation in that, in that domain space. Hmm. So I guess that, um, I'm, I mean, that's intuitive what you're saying, but it might also kind of bleed into like the art and the art side of kind of building or staging the right training data, depending on the outcome that you're looking for. That, that's where some creativity is involved or, or not so much? Uh, somewhat, yes. It, it depends um, a lot on the use case. Okay. So in the, the basic GAN paradigm, when we want the generator to learn photorealistic um, images, then by choosing the training data set, we are effectively choosing what the generator will learn to produce. So if you have a data set of human faces, that's what the generator would learn. Uh, or if we have um, paintings from uh, Leonardo da Vinci, then 
uh, the generator would learn to produce uh, paintings that, 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 that resemble those of Da Vinci. Mm. Is, it, is it wrong to say that you're kind of choosing a bias when you are staging that training data? You're, you're kind of introducing like naturally a, a bias, I guess, with the training data? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, machine learning algorithms are often on as good or effectively all cases are on as good as the, the examples that you train them on. Mm-hmm. And that um, has been um, an issue now that machine learning has more and more applications in even the, uh, like the justice system where algorithms may be imagined to be used to determine the... Um, um, like uh, the likelihood of somebody to reoffend, for 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 example, or in medical um, uh, applications, you may learn to see who would who should be admitted to a hospital or not. Or in uh, in workplaces, you may have an algorithm that determines the likelihood of somebody to succeed or be promoted. Um, and those are extremely tricky uh, use cases and extremely dangerous from the ethical standpoint because. The data sets include the biases that we have in our world, and the models will just learn to amplify those biases. So the selection of the training data and being being aware of not only the known biases, but also the unknown unknowns, or be um, cognizant that there might be a lot of unknown unknowns or biases that we haven't foreseen, um, is is extremely important and actually limits for good reasons the the usefulness of, of brand deep learning in in many applications because these models tend to be often very like very performant but also feel a lot like black box even to the researchers that are at the, um, uh, that are leading the advances in this field and without being able to interpret how a model has arrived on the decision, it's dangerous to deploy it in, in situations where human lives or well-being is, is at stake. Hmm. So, and then GANs, of course, do, do suffer from the uh, same, um, uh, same type of um, shortcoming where, you know, if you have a data set of brown dogs, the GAN wouldn't learn that a dog can also be white or mm-hmm. black or, uh, or, or have different color. We will just learn from the, from the data that was provided. And there are also interesting failure cases where GANs just don't end up being able to develop complex enough representation. So there, are, there is a complex version of a GAN called CycleGAN which learns to turn one Im- image from one domain into an image of another domain. So a simple example would be having a black and white image and turning it into a colored image. But there are also more fascinating use cases like taking a nighttime scene and turning it into a daytime, se- daytime scene of the same exact same, um, um, same setting. Then there are also examples where you can take an image of a horse and in this very unsupervised way turn it into an image of a zebra, where the horse will essentially get like stripes assigned to it. But what's interesting is that the data set didn't have that many horse riders. Hmm. So when it's a horse with a rider, then it's not only the horse getting the zebra stripes, it's also the rider, 
which of course you know is an invalid output, but it's it's largely um, a function of the data set which just wasn't given enough examples of horseback riders, and there are no horseback riders on a zebra. So it was able to actually develop a, an internal representation of these of these complex relationships. Hmm. And this might be only one example uh, of many, but it is you know the the story of caution that um, as exciting as the the results uh, that deep learning is providing, the lot of the practical applications are currently limited because of the um, very valid ethical concerns with, with deploying these systems in in production and the real world scenarios. Hmm. Yeah. One one other thing that comes to mind, um, maybe this is just my ignorance speaking here, but I'm curious, why are GANs not uh, kind of talked about in time series data? Like, for example, like stock market prices, or uh, that's that's really like, like, why couldn't you use a GAN for predicting prices or kind of like reverse engineering price action? Interesting. So there is a lot of other deep learning uh, algorithms like recurrent neural networks. Um, that are well suited to, to predicting time series. GANs um, are, it's, um, say they, so GANs are very good, uh, at least in the base version of emulating uh, a training data set. Uh, with stock, price, stock pricing or sequential data, that would require fairly like complex modifications to the to the underlying system. So it's um, so there have been if that um, not sure if that uh, if it makes sense, but essentially like let's let's go back to the um, to the GAN paradigm. So we have the two neural networks, and there is an output, and then we are looking whether the output is real or false. In time series data, it's what is an incorrect way for a graph to go, right? Like stock price can go up and go, or, or, can go, uh, or can go down. And you often actually have the base truth. You actually know historically whether the stock price went up or down. So other uh, machine le- uh, or the deep learning approaches that are learning from sequences to predict the next stage in the sequence are just better suited for, for this particular use case. And there are um, examples, uh, examples like that. Okay, so it's almost and like, uh, so I'll say that again? Yeah, and uh, there are, uh, you know, countless, um, and it's like a very act like a, predicting time series because of its immense practical applications, everything from cost forecasting to in stock trading uh, price forecasting has been, you know, it's a very active area of research and GANs, and it's always the right tool for the job. And GANs, I would, I would say GANs have been tried in every different domain and every different use case, but mm-hmm. Generally speaking, just this isn't there, there for that. Because this just would be the wrong tool for the job. Although I would bet that there is a paper out there that actually uses GAN to uh, to, to, to forecast uh, surprises because yeah, GANs are 
one of the, uh, the, the number of papers uh, published on the topic of GANs has been growing exponentially since, uh, uh, since their inception. So again, uh, it must be not only one paper out there that actually addressing the question, but probably dozens. Um, mm-hmm. I just, uh, it's not an area that I've explored. And intuitively, it just doesn't also seem like a place where GANs are set up uh, for success or, or appear like the right tool for the job. Fair enough. I'll, I'll, uh, uh, what, what, there was something actually you said at the end, have a strong uh, opinion until uh, proven uh, otherwise, or there was something yeah. along, uh, what, what was that saying again? Have, have a yeah. strong opinion? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, um, strong, so it's a motto that I like to, it's like, or a type of mindset that I like to approach any problem, uh, both professional and personally, and that is, uh, Strong opinions weekly held, as in when I form an opinion or a stance on an issue, it's usually well-reasoned or based on some sort of evidence, but I'm always open to hearing other viewpoints and changing my mind in, in light of different data or, or a point of view that I haven't considered. So again, strong opinions weekly held. And this would be actually a perfect example in which uh, I can think of dozens of reasons why GANs would be illustrated in this area, but um, again, you know, people have been extremely clever in, in use, finding use cases for GANs and making the necessary modifications that and I'm always, um, always happen, happy to be proven wrong. No, I love that attitude. It's, it's probably um, suited you very well, I guess. That's like, it's, it's just been a great way to approach life is what it sounds like. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That was really cool. Um, I had, I actually had some, cause you lead a team, uh, at your, your current, uh, uh, em- employment. And I was kind of curious, what kind of character traits do you look for on, uh, the teams that you manage or, or like what type of character traits seem to, um, do better, I guess. So it's a great, um, great question. I think it's a, it's always a combination of things. So in um, the type of um, industry that I operate in, which is uh, uh, data science and machine learning, it's, it's necessary to have some technical and some base technical knowledge. But um, often it's hard work and the correct attitude beats intelligence and it, or raw intelligence any day. So the type of traits that we find um, in most successful candidates and people who end up you know, shining at the, at the company and making a real difference are, are people who are open-minded and approaching uh, problems in a very open-minded way and also not able to, to wrestle it to the ground, so to speak. And, um, 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 and yeah, that's... And then in, as in any team environment, and this is a saying um, I also, so or a metaphor that I like is that it's about people who care more about, like if you are on a, like a sports team, um, you need to care more about the logo at the front, which is your team and the team that you represent than the name at the back, which is usually your name. So it's also about just finding the team players that care um, more about um, the team, the broad team success and what makes everybody better off 
as opposed to just their own individual uh, advancement, even if it's at the cost of the team. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. But it's interesting because I did start off that, you know, even though I had worked in like a very technical field and probably as academic as it gets, mm-hmm. most of the trades that do contribute to, to success are soft skills ultimately, hmm. which is fascinating, uh, which, you know, is a, um, I used to be like extremely studious when I was, when I was little and very much close to myself. But, you know, it was a lesson I had to learn the hard way that, you know, I can't just... Um, just close myself off and more I, um, you know, the, with experience, I learned more and more that uh, it's not only about it's hard work, but also about attitude, teamwork and, and other aspects. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I, uh, I think it's a great reminder. Like I, I'm certainly enjoying uh, the reminders. So thank you. Yeah. Also. Uh, what what is a good framework to operate in when prioritizing learning resources? Because I know you said in the pre-interview, there's just an abundance of learning resources, which can be a problem <laughs> if you don't have like a framework, I guess, to like filter. So can you kind of share maybe your uh, filtering framework for learning resources? Um, can we narrow it, um, the question narrow it down a little bit? So like- sure be learning about a specific technique or, so yeah definitely uh when it comes to like these technical skills i think a lot of the people in my audience they're they're more tending towards data science with python so um is is that a good enough area to kind of zone into or do we need to get deeper yeah no that's, that's, no it's a, it's a great start so okay one thing this is actually something i did learn a bit of a hard, bit of a hard way um, is, and this, so good, the good way to, and this is, again, this is not a promotion, but good way to learn about topics is actually to pick up a book. Um, because there was somebody who spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about structuring uh, a topic into uh, into some cohesive uh, narrative, and even if it is just to read the table of contents or the way that the topics are organized, it's actually a great way to get the lay of the land, especially in the explore area, to know effectively what to Google, because nowadays all the information that is out there is very easily accessible and almost nobody with an access to to the working internet connection has excuse uh, not to learn anything that they wish unless it is especially when it comes to to the programming techniques or 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 modeling but the um, issue is often not knowing what term to look up so like no understanding like learning the a nomenclature of, a, of any given field and what are the most important terms to be aware of and understand and building a, a solid mental model of the key concepts and, and building an intuition behind like what might be at first like a very intimidating area I think is, is key and often a good way to start is again with uh, with a book because in order to uh, to be written somebody actually had to 
go through this painstaking process first. And although, you know, if you have 10 different people, they will come up with 10 different categorizations. It's often a good way to, to start and uh, all the better if the book was uh, published by, by an expert, which, uh, um, or, a, or, a, or a known expert and ton of, ton of recommendations here for deep learning. And then it also depends on how technical people want to get. But if somebody is very technical, then Ian Goodfellow, the inventor of GANs, has published has published textbook on deep learning, which is um, again this is probably more for mathematical and academically inclined people. But then there is a ton of uh, practical hands-on publications um, from you know a range of publishers. And again, I will keep the one to one one add any promotional content, but. Uh, no, I'm, I mean, that's, that's definitely part of the uh, purpose of this podcast is to shed light on your brand and you're the creator. This is probably the newest GAN, one of the newest GAN books on the market, if not the newest GAN book that you, you've written with Jacob. It's also, yeah, it's often, GANs actually are often just reduced to a single chapter in, in, in many books, including mm -hmm. the textbook written by the inventor of the technique. And ours is... Um, one of the first, if not the first, um, hands-on guides to GANs more broadly from the ground up that is dedicated to um, solely to GANs. So we are able to dive into, into different examples and use cases um, and applications. And it's very, and much like um, all of the publications from our, uh, from our publisher, uh, it's very, it's meant for practitioners and it's very hands-on. Uh, it's light on theory, except for all the, on the essential one. And it's mostly uh, just walking through examples, diagrams, and developing the, the intuition for why things uh, are how they, how they are. So when they crack this thing open, they can expect a lot of hands-on practical uh, code and, and uh, yep. is that okay? Yeah, and I know that's. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, there are several uh, GAN techniques implemented from the ground up. It's on the on small toy examples, but it's um, very good for the instruction of just learning the, the concepts and the different modifications that can be done on the core GAN model to apply to different use cases. Um, an example that comes to mind is that uh, GAN, the core GAN is able to generate. Um, photorealistic imaging, but it's a random image. So if you have an image of human faces, it can be any human face that comes out because it's it's random data being turned into a very black box way into a photorealistic image. But you have no control whether it's a man or a woman or an um, or an old person or somebody with long hair, short hair, what have you. Uh, but there are modifications that can be done to GANs where you introduce additional information. Uh, and you condition the training on this additional information, and then you can ask the generator to produce an example of, to your liking. So in the example of human faces, you can tell it that you want to produce an elderly woman or a man with long hair or, um, or, um, or any, any other example that might come, might come to mind with the labels that you condition the training on. And... Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's just like one uh, one example that we um, that we cover, but it's it's truly it starts from the 
um, base again and the intuition behind it and then builds towards the, the more advanced applications with the practical applications of it in mind. And the other question that I, I was going to ask you was, um, what, what type of arena, I guess, would you get a, a, a job or kind of like if you had a mission to get a job in a certain space or to be an entrepreneur in a certain space, why would GANs be more on your radar? Like, is there a certain niche of, or industry? Um, do you have any insight on that? Yeah, uh, so GANs have actually seen for, for like a very novel machine, uh, deep learning techniques, they have seen uh, in industry use cases fairly quickly. And it's, and they have shined particularly well with imagery. So it's any area where um, images need to be manipulated. So for instance, in many um, um, uh, image um, proce uh, pieces of image processing software where you are either making somebody older, younger, or even changing the lighting of, that, of an image, um, then that's that's where GANs are actually used in these um, in these consumer use cases. So a lot of the actually, if, if on your phone there is an app that uh, modifies an image or, or uh, like enhances uh, features in like a selfie or things like that, uh, it's large it's probably based on GANs in in YWAN or another or one of those use cases is. Hmm. I would say I would. Um, it really depends on uh, what people are interested in. Other thing, other places where GANs have been have a lot of experimental use cases. Currently, is medicine, where you imagine it's actually extremely costly to come about a data set, right? Because you need to. Um, it's there are both privacy concerns and practical limitations to be able to actually come by a, a data set of um, of medical conditions. And, but it's also extremely important to be able to classify these data sets or make determinations based on data sets or even teach medical students based on um, um, relatable examples. And GANs have been actually um, used um, to enhance a lot of these use case, uh, a lot of these uh, like data sets in area where data is uh, scarce or expensive, uh, expensive to get. And then there are also countless applications of GANs in creative endeavors such as fashion. So Amazon actually in their labs is known to use or has been reported to use GANs uh, to be able to predict um, um, fashion trends uh, or even be able to generate new uh, fashion items that would be matching uh, an individual's liking or, or a given trend. Because what's interesting in fashion, uh, particular, is that change tastes all the time. It depends on the season, depends on what's being promoted. So historical data, even though there is a large data set, they might not mean much, right? Like something may have been in fashion last season or even last month, but it's no longer sellable today. So your data set, coming back to the concept that we, um, we discussed previously, is going to be biased based on the historical trends, which may not actually be, have any, in the case of fashion, may, have, may not have any predictive value for what the future 
consumer behavior would be. Hmm. And GANs are actually able to, to, to learn a lot of the more complex uh, patterns there. Um, other area where I would um, expect GANs to be used is in animation and game design, where usually you know, it's very expensive for human animators to generate new characters or in a game uh, to, to generate new, uh, new characters. With GANs, you can effectively imagine that you can create an endless variety of, of uh, both environments and um, characters and creatures within it that match certain criteria, like a distinct style of, let's say, a Pixar movie or a distinct style of a, of a classic uh, Disney movie, but wouldn't have been explicitly created by a human animator. And in game playing, you can imagine like a GTA-like game where the world is truly endless um, in, in, a way, in a very believable, um, believable way. So I think GANs as a way to either enhance existing data sets as in medicine or modify in a believable way existing imagery like the image editing that we, uh, that we covered or help enhance human creativity with generating uh, examples that fit into a certain domain in a very believable way. Uh, I think those would be the, the, the three top areas, but um, likely there's um, countless others. Sure. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. What was the uh, like biggest takeaway, I guess, from writing that book? Because I know you said it was kind of like a learning adventure while you were, you were writing it. Yeah, what, definitely. What was like the big takeaway? So the big takeaway... Um, there's, there's multiple. For me personally, it was that always think about book writing as a process of imparting knowledge on someone, right? It's about sharing what you know about the topic and then hopefully helping others learn more effectively about it, those who are interested in it, which is a very humbling process in itself. But what has been most I am thinking about writing the book is that it itself is as much a learning experience as it is an opportunity to teach. So during the process, I learned a lot more about the topic than I knew before I started the book because I could research it really in depth and make sure that the present the information present is accurate and it is presented in a way that is understandable, even to your grandmother, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and other thing is, is that um, through thanks to our publisher, we actually were able to share unfinished manuscripts directly with our readers who are interested and who are able to provide us feedback as we are writing the book. And that helped me improve both um, as, um, as a writer and as way, as a, as, as way to uh, effectively communicate information, but also actually brought my attention to areas of this topic that I wouldn't have considered myself and actually had to um, had to be able to um, zero down on and, 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 um, and, and learn to explain. So again, it's been, uh, it's been I think I learned, uh, to be honest, my, uh, might sound uh, strange, but I think I learned um, probably as much, if not more, as any of our readers uh, uh, during the process. Although, you know, as much as I would like to hope that, uh, you know, the book will also be a great learning resource for or anybody who wants to learn uh, about this topic. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And we actually, we have some, 
uh, the publisher provided a discount code for the listeners here. And then we have a few uh, uh, codes that, that I'll be using to give away to the folks. So certainly uh, the, the name of the book is uh, uh, could, it's GANS and then Gans connection, uh, and the sub- subtitle is deep learning with generative adversarial networks. And mm-hmm. what I think was going to be of particular relevance to, to your listeners is that all the examples in the book are in, in Python. And uh, in particular, we used Keras, which is uh, uh, the deep learning uh, library in, uh, for Python that makes building neural networks almost as easy as uh, playing with Lego bricks. So uh, that's been great. And, and more broadly for deep learning, actually, um, and the discount code will apply to that as well. Uh, the book Deep Learning with Python, written by Francois Chalet, who is the inventor of Keras is also in the, in the portfolio of our publishers. So if somebody is looking for deep learning introduction more broadly, rather than GANs in particular, then that would be um, a really great resource. But for GANs, you know, I would like to hope that um, our book is, is, is one of the more useful ones. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm so happy that uh, you, were, you had time to come on the show and uh, do this demonstration of your knowledge and kind of imparting on this on the audience. Um, I just had a couple of wind down questions. I know we're way over time here. So if I had to pick like two of these, uh, <laughs> one is what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, I think the best piece of advice is, um, it's received from, uh, is, um, as I was starting in the university, it was don't compete, but connect. Uh, which is, which I think extremely well summarizes the, the notion that it's always better to uh, cooperate with others and, um, and not compete with, with one another. And that's been actually very eye-opening, especially in classes where everybody was on a curve, meaning the grades were determined relative to each other. So there was actually through like zero-sum game amongst the students. And yet those who have been most successful are those who learned that, uh, the lesson that I just mentioned, which is it's always better to, to um, focus on teamwork and uh, collaborate with, with everyone than to try to close to oneself uh, uh, and then and compete in isolation. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. What, what is the um, best non-technical book that you've ever read? Uh, Sapiens. By, Sapiens. Yeah, um, by Harari. Uh, it's an extra, it's a fairly short book, about 300 pages, and it's extremely insightful um, about just that it discusses the arc of human civilization from prehistory to the modern age in a um, very thoughtful and synthesizing manner. Uh, and although it's a very short book, it's very well reasoned and didn't doesn't doesn't feel rushed and it's it's one of those books that does make you look at the world slightly differently um and you know it's been um, so for that reason as i um would definitely be on the on the top of my list of recommendations cool and uh what do you hope someone takes away from this interview um 
It's a great question. Uh, I hope it's, uh, if nothing else, uh, I would like people to have a basic understanding of how GANs function. I think I felt miserable at the beginning. I think I hope that towards the end I, I improved my explanation. And I do hope that at least some of the uh, way that GANs work uh, stuck with people and hopefully it sparked a curiosity uh, to learn a bit more about the topic, either through, through our book or through, through other resources that are out there. It's, a, it's truly a um, fascinating paradigm that is both academically but also practically um, extremely fascinating and you know, I would encourage people to um, learn more about it. Well, I, and I'll, I'll just say this, I, you did a better job than I could have done. So don't, <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, it's a tricky subject and I'm so happy. I mean, you're, you're definitely put in the effort to write the book and I'm, I'm happy to have you on the show. We can showcase this knowledge. Um, other than that, where, what is kind of the, the call to action? Like where can people find you? Uh, is the, the best place to go get this is at Manning. Um, what, what is your call to, main call to action here? Yeah, so Manning is where the, uh, this consensus was also applied. So it's probably the, the best way to, um, to get the book. In terms of call to action, I like to um, stay engaged with the community through my uh, Medium blog. So we actually covered some of the um, ideas that I discussed in depth in my blog post, and I seek to continue contributing uh, there and uh, it's been just a great way to, to engage with the broad community. Um, so the book itself is somewhat static. We have a forum where people can ask questions and, and Jacob and I respond to, to any questions that people ask in the, in the forum. But when it comes to like continuous engagement with the community, then uh, I'm always very thankful for anybody who uh, reads and provides feedback on, on my pieces on, on, on the blog. And that's um, currently in Medium and through both uh, Hacker Noon and Tovers Data Science and other medium-based publications is where I contribute. Uh, just a visually very nice, pleasant, uh, pleasant uh, place to, um, to, to run a blog. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, uh, I certainly have uh, more lines of question here, but we'll just table it for now. Um, yes. I know it's getting late where you're, <laughs> where you're at, but yeah, you saw how the can of worms just kind of like <laughs> If if you leave me at the front of the ship, I'll just ask questions all night. So, <laughs> thanks thanks again. This has been a been a blast. And uh, was there anything else we left off the table, or or you feel good about everything we've discussed here? Yeah, I think there's one more thing that I would like to mention. Sure. Um, uh, I'm donating all of my proceeds to the nonprofit organization Girls Who Code. So you know, although some of the content here might have felt um, like self-congratulatory uh, and, and promotional. Uh, I have, uh, again, all of my uh, proceeds go towards a good cause and that you know, it's been one of the more uh, rewarding, aspect, rewarding aspects of actually uh, writing these publications as well. Excellent. So it's going to Girls Who Code, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a New York-based uh, nonprofit that helps more young girls uh, to get excited about uh, opportunities in technology and, and pursue both um, studies in STEM fields and also careers in those fields and thereby helping to close the, the gender gap that currently exists in, in technology. 
that's really cool. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to uh, add that in here. I, I don't know how I would have un, unre- or unveiled that if you didn't share it. So thank you for sharing. Uh, I think that's super uh, exciting and we'll certainly include that when uh, promoting the book, if you're okay with that. Yeah, I would, uh, yeah, I would find that fun. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be great. Awesome. Well, Vladimir, thank you so much. And uh, everyone else, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.